expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What's the matter with you guys? Nuts or something? Can't you motion picture people stay on your own sets? This is a public highway. What can I do for you? Everybody line up. That is man we want. Take him. Everybody else back in bus. We have a message for you to take to your leaders. We have received an ultimatum demanding the surrender of the United States within 48 hours or a state of war will exist. What? Or an ultimatum from whom? The Indians. But India is a neutralist nation. I can't believe any little Indian band is going to defeat the United States Army. I agree with you, General Custer. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 8, 2010. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today. Robert Vaughn not with us today, but will rejoin us again next week. Sometimes he has to work out of town, and that takes him away from doing his favorite volunteer activities from time to time. But have no fear. We've got a lot on the, sh- on the, on the slate for you today. 519-661-3600 is the number to call. And some of the, the big issue today I want to talk about, as you probably guessed from the opening clip, is, uh, is about the whole Aboriginal question. This is an issue I have not yet visited in all the four years that I've talked about so many subjects on this show. So it'll be the main theme, but not quite yet. Uh, we've got a couple other issues online, too. Maybe at the end, by the end of the show, if I have time, I want to just address a taxing question. Do the economic choices you make hurt others? I heard an interesting debate on this very issue earlier in the week on, on, I don't know where I heard it actually, but I thought I'd throw my two cents in on that one as well. But first, I'd like to make an appeal for honest pricing in electricity prices. No doubt you've all been hearing all the the news stories about our power situation, the Toronto power outage during the Queen's visit. Uh, Yesterday here in London, apparently we had pockets of power outages in London around noon, the same time yesterday. Byron, Westmount, Wonderland Road South and Belmont. Nancy Hutton, spokesperson for London Hydro, said, well, the disruption had nothing to do with the weather. It's apparently normal for these kind of breakdowns to happen, and it's just a coincidence that it happened on a day where the humidex was in the low to mid-40s like it is today. So officially, it's equipment failure, but how is that a better excuse than saying it's the heat? Because the heat causes equipment failure. It's equipment failure both ways, isn't it? So is that what we want? You know, I remember a time in this city... And I can tell by my um, by my microwave and a couple of my VCRs that will start blinking if there's so much as a split second of a power interruption in the grid system going to my building. And I can recall that I could leave them plugged in for years and not have an interruption. I've got to tell you, I can't have a... Not a week goes by where I don't get maybe two or three. Maybe for a second. Maybe just happened again Saturday morning. Power went right off. 
I'm in the I'm in the uh, Baseline Road West area. Just went off and on, and of course, you have to reset your VCRs. Everything that runs on a clock, your computer's shut off, uh, and it can be expensive for people who get caught with even a, a minor break like that. And apparently, um, things don't look like they're going to be getting any better. On top of everything, we get these ridiculous bills in the mail. And we got this piece of propaganda recently. This is what got me going. Important information about your electricity rates. Did you see that in your latest billing? I tell you, in my apartment building, by the way, I don't pay electricity. It's part of the rent. But I do at the office where I work, and that is, of course, the Freedom Party offices. And we've got to be the most conserving electricity people in the city because... Our London Hydro invoice for our office last month totaled $38.87. Price breaks down as follows. Electricity, 67.66 kilowatt hours at six, uh, $6.5 is $4.40. Delivery, $31.44. Regulatory debt and taxes, 303 for a total of $38.87 on a electricity usage of $4.40. So, in, you know, inserted with this bill, I find this propaganda piece written in such a manner as to convince the reader that he or she is actually receiving electricity at, at a rate somewhere between 6.5 and 7.5 cents per kilowatt hour. And the, l- let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, this is not true. It's a fraudulent misrepresentation of the price that you are really paying. It may be a component of the price, but it's not your price, and it's irrelevant to you. All this information they give you on these sheets that break down all sorts of stuff are facts given to you to disempower you as a consumer. You can't do anything about those facts because you don't have a choice, and that's the one fact that's not on the sheet. That's why they give you all the other facts. But, you know, according to our invoice, we're paying in actual dollars, 38.87 for 67 kilowatt hours of electricity. And so if you divide that correctly, we are actually paying 57.4 cents per kilowatt hour, not the six and, you know, seven cents that they say. Therefore, the honest price we're paying for our electricity bill is 50 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, if you're an average homeowner, according, again, to this handout, you're using around 800 kilowatts, uh, kilowatt hours per month. And you would have a, total, a bill totaling 114.29, which is, I'm using the example they gave right on the sheet. Divided by 800, that comes to 14 cents per kilowatt hour, still twice the rate that is being quoted. And by the way, when I did my own calculation using their quoted rates, I arrived at exactly $54. But their example showed a $56.45 amount, and it had an asterisk beside it. So I checked out the asterisk, and you know what it reads? Get this. The consumption used for these rates is subject to a loss adjustment factor. When electricity is delivered over a power line, it is normal for a small amount of power to be consumed or lost as heat. Equipment such as wires and transformers consume power before it gets to your home or business. The adjustment factor accounts for these losses. You know, there's an adjustment factor, but how do you adjust a factor? It's not even in the figures. It's just bumped up over what the figure is. How do they work it out? You know, talk about BS of the highest order. And apparently, since May 1st of this year, we're also paying, and you'll see that on the sheet, quote, a special purpose charge calculated at 0.0004 cents per kilowatt hour, 
which they say amounts to approximately $4 per year, to cover the cost of the government's conservation programs, including the Home Energy Savings Program, HESP, and the Solar Thermal Heating Initiative, OSTHI. They have letters for all of these things. This charge, which is being collected on behalf of the Ministry of Energy and Infrastructure, will collect $53 million from all consumers beginning May 1st, 2010, until the next summer of 2011 although they don't give an expiry date. You know, summer ends in September, but taxes never end. And uh, I'll, I'll wait to see if they ever stop that tax. Then, the ultimate misrepresentation and irrelevancy. The notice says, Many of the charges that are applied to your monthly bill are collected by London Hydro and passed on to the appropriate agency. Several years ago, when the industry was deregulated, the bill was unbundled to identify the true cost of electricity by separating the various components of the bill. As we move towards time of use rates in London next spring, the rate you will pay will become closer to the actual cost of electricity, end quote. Now, that's, this is just pure dishonesty in pricing. The costs and prices that you see reflected on your utility bills are totally unreal, and I mean unreal in the sense that I talk about on the show, philosophically, on this show all the time. And they're based on a very simple accounting trick, which seems to work quite well at uh, getting the public to accept all the unreal prices they have to pay for a service that should be available for a fraction of the current cost to consumers. And the trick is what they just said. They separate, it's an accounting trick, they separate the biller's capital costs from his operating costs and then even, unbelievably, his debt, as if they were all unrelated, separate services being provided to us independently of each other by a single monopoly service provider, no less. Yeah, I mean, so like, if, while you're at it, why don't you show us the cost of salaries and the cost of benefits and, uh, and the cost of your office rent in our buildings? I'm sure we'd all like to know how much of our price paid goes towards these very necessary functions. Because without them, you wouldn't have, you know, we wouldn't be receiving our power. Why aren't they listed there? I can tell you why. They don't want, they don't want to let you know what, what they're getting paid. But by breaking all of this nonsense down, all information you can't do anything about, they can lie to you and say that they're providing electricity to us at a, at a low rate, one which does not include debt, which does not include capital costs, and then claim that this is their cost of producing electricity. I mean, Madoff is in jail for, for, for less than that, and yet we, we, our whole government operates on this. And then you see that they have this lovely looking pie charts. I mean, they're very pretty, and they illustrate who gets what share of the pie. And, uh, you know, I find them quite symbolic since what we're really talking about is a fixed pie chart, which is what you get when government runs anything. If that pie were being baked every week and growing and growing, you wouldn't be worried about the kind of prices we're paying now. And, you know, consider that, you know, here we are, we're living in the supposedly green mania of conserving energy. Note that the person who conserves the most or, or who in many cases cannot afford to pay more than a certain amount is being fiscally punished for using less. That's how our system is priced. Talk about adding insult to injury. Can you even possibly imagine what your electric bill would look like with solar energy at the 80.2 cents per kilowatt hour originally planned by the McGinty government? They cut it back a bit, but some people got it on that price, price deal already. That by itself is already 50% more than the true price we're already paying, not the BS price that we're talking about. Then we hear in the news that the McGinty government, you know, as, as they're moving towards high-tech green energy through solar and wind power, they're piping all that energy into a grid system that's been termed a Model T grid system by many of the industry analysts. 
So as we spend billions on power production, we've been letting the distribution just basically rot because it's, it's infrastructure. And that's always the case, isn't it? That you get into a situation where it's, what do they say? They say it's not sexy spending. It's not, it doesn't make for political uh, popularity to spend on infrastructure. Certainly a lesson I learned a long time ago in this city when we were trying to push infrastructure as being the main thing that politicians should be promising us to, to keep up and at a low cost. But they spend it on other things, and then they add the cost for the infrastructure, which is the reason we're paying things like property tax you know, in the first place. Uh, to a point where they're not using the money for what it was originally intended, and then we have to pay extra charges, which they keep telling us, well, that'll make everything better. You know, I had originally planned to to spend this whole part of the show to explain how we actually got into this mess, give you a history of of what happened with uh, Ontario Hydro 25 years ago, but I decided to save that one for a little later because um, that's truly a story in and of itself, and you can see how this thing was just an amazing fraud from day one. I mean, they literally misrepresented all of their costs, their assets, their liabilities. Um, The whole industry was just rife with with, um, corruption. That's what happens when government money flows towards something when you don't have to earn it and you just have to take it. Well, then you will, and especially if we let them get away with it. That's where we'll leave that one for for now, and when we come back on the other side of this, we will be visiting the issue of property rights and the Aboriginal question. Here's something interesting about New York City. We have one electric company in New York City. They're called Con Edison. They're our only electric company, yet they advertise on television. (laughs) What the hell are they thinking about? Our bills are more expensive because we pay for them to advertise. What could they possibly say in a commercial that would make any difference to us? I work on Edison. Sorry. (laughs) Con Edison, if either us are rubbing two sticks together. Con Edison, you have no other choice. Bow! The post office advertises stamps on television. Stamps! We have commercials that actually go, buy U.S. postage stamps. All right, now maybe it's just me. But my whole life, all I've ever bought was U.S. postage stamps. Because when you try scotch taping 37 pennies to the envelope, it never gets there. Because every time you put a penny on the envelope, it weighs more. Then you can put another penny on, then it weighs more, another penny, and you can never win. My name is Don Kelly, Ojibwe Indian. Any of my homies in the house? Good, because I need a ride back to Kapiskasing. Has anyone? <laughs> my cousin Drylips needs some chapstick, so we have to. Uh... All right, it's a native crowd. Good, I can tell. That's cool, man. Oh, man, well, this is great. People, you know, people always ask me, first thing I get when they hear me, Don Kelly, how does an Indian get the name Kelly, and that's the name on the Ojibwe side. And a quick history lesson, some of you uh, Native folks probably know this. About 100 years ago, government wanted to set up reserves, right? Come to all our communities, get a list of everyone in the community. So, you know, the white guy would go to my great-great-great-grandfather, you know, and your name is... Shonya Gwaneb Pevam Nagabo and Dejnaka Zonegaming Danjoba Pijo and Totem. 
Okay, Mr. Kelly. <laughs> uh, you can pronounce it any way you want. We're spelling it Kelly. Knock yourself out, you know? And, and yeah, I realize the look, too, doesn't always give it away. I'm, uh, what would the politically correct term be? I'm uh, pigmentally challenged. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm melanin-deprived for the science students out there, but I come by it naturally. Like a lot of things in my life, I blame mom for that because uh, she's no native blood. Dad's Ojibwe, mom, no native blood. In fact, she's Swedish. Yeah, so she's not just white, she's downright pale. <laughs> and that's where I get it, you know? And I know you're all coming up with your own little joke right now, too, right? Oh, Ojibwe, Swedish, sounds kind of like uh, Dances with Bjorn. <laughs> It's, it's, it's an interesting combination. It's an interesting dichotomy. Half native, half white. Like, for example, I find my white side often tries to exploit my native side. <laughs> well, no, I'll give you a real-life example. Like, I'll walk into, let's say, a bank, right? At the busiest time, there's a huge mob of people, a huge crush of people. The teller will come out. Okay, so who was here first? And I'm like, well, technically... <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. And I'm Bob Metz, and the number to call if you want to join in the conversation is 519-661-3600. Boy, you know, with all the news we've heard about, you know, in a couple of years ago, the whole Ipperwash situation, and with the Aboriginal people, the natives in Caledonia, and there's a lot of people pretty upset about this issue that nobody's really addressing the fundamentals that are causing the whole problem in the first place. I see a few voices being raised here and there. And I was asked 15 years ago exactly, on February 26, uh, 1995, to address uh, the Reform Party, uh, which existed then, of Canada's Aboriginal Task or Aboriginal Affairs Task Force, which was also manned by other parties at the time. And I got a chance to research the situation and uh, do a presentation, which was really not an issue with me initially, but I was always collecting information in it. And when I got together, this is basically what I told them then, and it's still what I kind of think is the proper way of looking at it now. And, <clears throat> you know, the discomfort in dealing with this, this is that the moment we start using terms like Aboriginal, Indian, or Native in the context of discussing special government policy with respect to people identified as such, you're already practicing racism. It's racism if the laws are based on those identities. So you want to get rid of that element if you can. And the only way I can see by doing that is the same way as the Romans did it when they discovered that you, you tie representation to land, to the base, to property, not to heritage and lineage. This was the problem that the Romans solved 2,000 years ago, and we're still struggling with it here in North America. So, as someone who doesn't, you know, believe in special status for any individuals or groups under a government, everything I have to say is almost predetermined in a way. Fundamentally, I think we all have to, to learn to recognize that in a truly free society where every individual is equal before and under the law, there are no such things as Aboriginal rights, just as there are no such things as French rights, English rights, 
black rights, white rights, women's rights, men's rights, labor rights, business rights, or a never-ending host of self-proclaimed collective rights whose causes our various federal and provincial governments have championed from time to time. There are only individual rights which in a free society accrue to all individuals, regardless of any of those other statuses that I just mentioned, regardless of race, regardless of sex, color, creed, interests, or affiliations. Legitimate rights do not accrue as a consequence of one's racial or cultural background or history. That's not the source of a right. Nor should any form of government be based on such grounds. If we believe that for a minute, then we are racists of the lowest order and we're just asking for the trouble that we get into. Now, here's a big surprise to most people, and you're going to be hearing this a little later on from someone from the Native community himself. The problems faced by Canada's Aboriginal peoples are really no different from those faced by the rest of us, the rest of Canadians. The things I hear them asking for are fundamentally no different than what all Canadians want. We all want, quote, self-government, end quote. We all want the right to be free to make our own choices and to determine our own destinies. We all want to be free from violence and be given the due respect of our fellow citizens. Just as Canadians feel that their governments are no longer representing their true feelings and values, Aboriginal peoples are faced with a leadership that does not seem to reflect their true feelings or values either. This is the biggest thing that surprised me. Or shouldn't have. I guess I should have learned from watching our government. Why should their representatives be any different? But even more reassuring, and what many may find surprising, is that Aboriginal peoples in general do not feel any different than Canadians in general. In a July 5th, way back 1993, Montreal Gazette column by William Johnson, he reports uh, the results of a Statistics Canada Aboriginal People Survey, which was a follow-up to the 91 Canadian Census. 625,000 uh, Indians, Métis, and Inuit were questioned about language and lifestyle. Significantly, the survey showed that most do not live on reserves or on Aboriginal settlements. In fact, 64% of Indians live outside of Indian settlements. As Johnson correctly commented, self-government then can hardly be a solution for the problems of the two-thirds of Indians who are already living away from the reserve. But most importantly, the survey asked what specific measures would best address the problems in Aboriginal communities. And the most popular answer among Aboriginals, reflecting a similar demand in the rest of Canadian society, was, quote, more policing, end quote. Only 4,200 of the 625,000 people questioned endorsed the concept of, quote, self-government. I mean, that's, that's almost negligible. While a return to a traditional lifestyle was endorsed by a mere 3,000 people. 3,000 out of 625,000. Is that what you're being told by your government? No. In stark contrast, 58% of non-Aboriginal Canadians support self-government for Aboriginal people. How's about that for brainwashing? According to the results of the Spicer Commission in 1991, it had been suggested that this could be because the majority of Canadians do not hear the voices of the average Aboriginal individual, but do hear conflicting voices of Native leaders whose definition of self-government is very different from theirs. And among some leaders includes the power to exempt Aboriginals from the Criminal Code of Canada and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Most Canadians would not, I believe, accept the latter proposition as a condition of self-government. The same Spicer Commission that reported 58% of non-Aboriginal Canadians support self-government also reported that 85% of non-Aboriginal Canadians favor more equitable treatment for the country's Aboriginals. 
An exemption from the supreme laws of the land would surely not qualify as equitable treatment, even by the furthest stretch of the imagination. So, you know, you can see that the problems that they, they would be getting in there. Now, speaking about how Native people feel, what you're about to hear in this next clip coming up, I want to break a little early because I've given quite a bit of time. You're not going to be hearing from me again for about 10 minutes or so. This is original material recorded here at the University of Western Ontario, again, back in July 2000, July 27th. This is from another of the series of lectures and presentations made during the Society for Individual Freedom's week-long conference, uh, of which I was official registrar. And also participating at that conference were representatives of Canada's various Native and Aboriginal tribes, who were certainly not at all in agreement with each other on a number of issues, among whom was the individual you're about to hear. Now, I know that many people are very uncomfortable with what we see happening in the relationship between Canada's various governments and her native peoples. The divide seems to be growing. Caledonia has become a sore point and leaves most people believing there is a great divide in the basic values held by the native people and the rest of Canada. But, you know, the native community is no different philosophically from other communities. The same debates occur within the native community, you know, left and right, all the same stuff, the same issues, and the same effects and consequences are being experienced. We always seem to hear from the extremist aboriginal leaders who, who seem to have nothing in common with, quote, white man society. Is that what you believe? Is that really what all members of the native community are like? Well, if so, be prepared to be challenged. Because the person you're about to hear for the next 10 minutes or so, both on this side, four minutes on this side, and four and a half minutes on the other side of the break, is Chief Elfie of the Nishahook tribe in British Columbia. And he showed up at the conference, and um, I think you'll be surprised to hear what he has to say about the whole situation. And we'll leave you there, and we'll see you again in about 10 minutes. So please welcome Chief Elfie. I'm really uh, happy to be here with you, but uh, it is good to be here with you. Uh, we're involved in the uh, treaty process, and like most Canadians, we get involved in things we have absolutely no understanding what it's about. Uh, Canadians, on our behalf, sign things that even they don't understand, but they sign it because it's a good motherhood statement to make. And uh, they sign things like, um, uh, they sign things in the Constitution like uh, Aboriginal rights, existing, ab post, post contact, or pre contact Aboriginal rights, existing rights, get this, emerging rights are hereby recognized and affirmed. They had no idea what they were signing, neither did we. And uh, so, um, we have more distrust and we have reason to feel this way than you do about the Canadian government. Um, we're involved in, 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 in a treaty process that has as a, its objective from the Canadian government point of view to extinguish us as a people um, uh, and we are in a unique situation where we're not really in a hurry to be extinguished, you know. 
<laughs> and so I'm, I'm glad we're not in a hurry to sign it because there are some disturbing things there. I, I have to give you a bit of history about about my name. My name, my my tribal name is Nisqahawk. It's a 9,000 year old name that started in the about uh, two hours to the east of me, where I live, and has migrated down the Skeena River, down the coast, up into Alaska, down to Vancouver Island, and throughout British Columbia. We, we, we can trace our history, we know our stories, and contrary to, to popular opinion, we were free traders. We had a very strong concept of private property. We had a strong concept of protecting our private property. And... Um, but now we, then we had people come over the mountain and they knew what was good for us. And we thought we were doing all right. But they had a better idea like Ford, you know. And these people thought they had a good idea when it came to, to help us. My hands are in your pocket and I didn't put them there. Somebody else put my hands in your pocket. And um, when, I was a, when I was a kid, we didn't know what welfare was about. We looked after our own. We worked. There was lots of opportunity. We had our own property. My dad, who was a deaf mute, built two houses, raised eight, eight kids. And the one time that he had to go to welfare because he got in a fight with a friend of his after after a night at the bar, he didn't remember what they were fighting about the next morning, but they had a fight and he broke his leg. And uh, he had to go for help for the last, he was off work for two months and went for help. After he got back to work on his first paycheck, he went back to the welfare office and said, here, this is yours. And he, he couldn't speak, but he used his hands and said, this is your money. And he said, no, this is not our money. He said, it is your money. I came in here and I needed this last month and now I'm giving it back. They didn't know what to do with it. So he just left it on the counter and went home. I've grown up with that as a role model for myself. Someone asked me a question a couple nights ago. Is it with, with the history of truly oppressed people around the world? Why don't you just walk away and, and do something different? I didn't give an answer that night, but it, it caused me to think. And for all the damage that's happened because of this welfare state, they would have been better to shoot us a long time ago. But fortunately, they didn't get to me. And I'm still here, and I'm going to change my world. 
or the people, at least that I live with. It's because we didn't think we could. One or two generations before me quit trying. And my generation don't think they can, so they're doing the next best thing. They're believing the lie that we need help to live. And they're using your money to do it. And I don't want your money. I just want the tools to make my own. That's all I want. Like our friend earlier on, I want to be a net contributor, not a net drainer to, to our society. I want to make alliances. I want to make associations that are mutually beneficial for all parties. I want to make you happy that you know me. I want to make you rich because you know me. Together we can do great things for your family and for my family. This is a unique window of opportunity that we have in British Columbia because we have not signed a treaty. But there are some provisions in that constitution that I like. Because when they said that pre-contact existing and emerging rights are hereby recognized and affirmed, one of the things, because they didn't understand what that meant, I know what that meant for me personally. It meant that I want to go back to the economy that my grandfathers had. And that was a free economy. It was a free trading economy. We have evidence that is in court documents today from the Gladstone decision that shows that we were trading tons of roe on kelp. Now that's those little baggies that the Japanese buy for $500 US a pound. We were trading tons of kelp. The Canadian government would like you to believe that we were just trading little baggies amongst each other. S Spanish ships with their captains were recording that those balabellas are going up, going somewhere with tons of rowan kelp and they're coming back with other goods. We did this with the Spaniards, we did this with the Russians, we did this with the Americans and then the Hudson Bay people came over and they said we would like to buy your fur. And said, well how much are you going to pay? And they told us the price. They said well we're buying that fur for more than that from our brothers to the east of us. We want to buy your furs. So they sharply pushed their prices up to match the prices that the Americans were offering us for our furs. We couldn't for the life of me. It was a great joke. I mean, why are all these people wanting all these crazy rabbits? Rabbits jumping off through the trees, you know, in front of our pathways, out of the trees, everywhere. Rabbits jumping out. And some, well, if somebody in Europe somewhere wants to make a hat or make a coat of this, really? Okay, take it away. I'll take your blankets, I'll take your guns, I'll take your shovels and your knives and your pots and your pans. Have all the rabbits you want. It was a good deal for us. Right? We were and we are a trading culture. We have a map showing our trading trails throughout all of British Columbia and throughout Canada. And we, we, we have grease trails and they're still there because after you lay down the pathway of grease for 9,000 years, nothing else grows on top of it. We have evidence. Anyway, I've talked about it. Thank you, Alfie, and I hope... Uh... And welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, joining you for the next half hour or so. That was Chief Elfie of the 
Nishahuk tribe in British Columbia. Now, that was really something different that you don't usually hear from the Native community in our media. You know, fundamentally then, you know, the proper principle on which to base any land claim settlements, and this is just a principle, I'm, I'm giving a very simplistic you know, a, a principled point of view. I realize the details get, get quite technical. But the proper principle is on which to base any land claim, settlements, rights, or government is a principle of individual rights under which all individuals are guaranteed their fundamental rights to, you know, freedom of speech, of assembly, of association, and the necessary private property rights to enable the exercise of such freedoms. Unfortunately, we're far from the idealization of this principle, and we cannot move forward until certain important issues are resolved, not the least of which are outstanding Aboriginal claims with the federal government. It's my understanding, and this was you know, 15 years ago, that as of uh, maybe longer, 1992, according to this statistic, there were still 310 outstanding specific land claims covering 53% of the surface of Canada, including downtown Vancouver, which is part of one claim. Now, I'm not in a position to judge which of these outstanding claims have merit and which do not, though I will go out on a limb to suggest that the one in downtown Vancouver is, is unlikely to be handed back to any particular an Aboriginal group. But any workable solution to this dilemma has to be based on the principle of establishing legitimate private property rights, because property rights in turn establish ownership, and therefore they define the responsibility for such ownership. Private property rights make self-government, you know that phrase, it's irrelevant since in a free society all individuals govern themselves and are free to do whatever they will so long as they don't violate the similar rights of their fellow citizens. It's a pretty simple deal. When that happens, we need the protection of such rights by the supreme law of the land, a law that treats us all equally on the basis of our actions and not on the basis of the color of our skin or of our ancestry. Many Aboriginal leaders fear the privatization of reserve land. And in a way, I have to share that, even though I'm recommending it. As Aboriginal writer Roger Abonsawin put it in a Globe and Mail article called How Do We Protect Our Treaty Rights? Quote, the privatization of reserve land strikes at the very root of the Aboriginal understanding of our relationship to the land and of the agreements in the Royal Proclamation and subsequent treaties. Other proposed laws involving governance, taxation, and exploitation of our natural resources will also be contentious, since they will let Ottawa absolve itself of its fiduciary responsibility to our people, end quote. Now, I think that argument is a disservice to the Aboriginal people, just for the same reason that Chief Alfie said earlier. It begins on a, you know, this basic racist premise that by virtue of someone's race, all Aboriginals share the same understanding of their relationship to the land. Well, you're not going to get a relationship to the land making a deal with the Canadian government, that's for sure. And, and of course, concludes with a plea for the continuous subsidization of Aboriginal groups by the rest of Canadian society, which, again, as Chief Alfie said, you might as well shoot them for giving them the money. It's, it's, it's amazing what, what has happened to that culture. In an age where our governments at every level are on the verge of bankruptcy, the continued subsidization of Aboriginal groups is both irresponsible and destructive. And, you know, the Alberta report, even back then, talked about Canadians being generally ignorant of the size of Ottawa's current spending on Native programs. For Indians alone, 387,000 of them, the federal government budgeted $4.4 billion way back in 1992-93, just in that one year alone. $12,359 for each man, woman, and child. 
just to fulfill its interpretation of treaties and other statutory obligations. Most of the money goes to paying 3,807 employees of DIAND, D-I-A-N-D, building houses on reserves, paying the cost of administering Indian bans, and providing Indians with education free through university, health care, dental care, job creation and employment training. Indians are also eligible for most of the social programs available to Canadians generally, and when spending on Indians under these programs is added to the $4.4 billion, the total reaches $7 billion. The $4.4 billion Indian program spending could easily exceed $10 billion by the year 2000, they predict. Well, it went way back past that. And that was just the federal spending. The province of Ontario, like the federal government, also spends fortunes on Aboriginals. I, I, we went through a whole list of things, and you'd see things like, uh, you know, $34,500 to build a comfort station at the Wata campgrounds, 45000 to establish a native crafts shop in Barrie, 75000 for equipment to expand tree planting services. You get the general picture on and on and on and on. The point to be made here, in addition to a, a condemnation of just simply wasteful spending, is that this type of spending certainly does not reflect the so-called Aboriginal lifestyle of the past that is being claimed to be protected. It doesn't even make sense. It reflects a clear desire for the products, goods, and services provided outside reservations. It does not address any Aboriginal concerns as such. You know... So instead of privatization, some of the native leaders have advocated, quote, an honest and open social contract, end quote, with Canada. And that sounds very nice on the surface, motherhood, as, as was said earlier, but it would be much less concrete a solution than privatization. Instead of ownership, which would empower all with the ability of self-determination, he advocates yet another agreement, quote-unquote, in effect a, a contract with a government whose laws he neither trusts nor respects. But I want to make a deal with him. Mm -hmm. Yet privatization is exactly what would solve all the legitimate concerns of Aboriginal peoples and of Canadians everywhere. For example, in a full-page news ad that was published by the Assembly of First Nations, it asserted that Canada's 1876 Indian Act, quote, discriminates against Indians, and in its example cited, I couldn't agree more. The Indian Act denies us the opportunity to make our own decisions, develop our lands and economic potential, educate our children, plan our future. It's no surprise that this near-total government intervention into every aspect of life has undermined confidence, initiative, and self-respect. The many regulations and guidelines have slowed down desperately needed improvements in housing, health, education, and employment in First Nations communities, end quotes. Now, that said, despite all the spending that I just outlined, and where have we heard these complaints before? From every Canadian of every conceivable background from coast to coast, we are all over-governed and over-regulated. And that's the reason that I can understand and identify with Aboriginal apprehensions regarding privatization. I get it. They don't want to see happening to them what's already happened to us. After all, Canadians from coast to coast cannot count on their governments to protect their property rights. I mean, they're not officially entrenched in the Constitution. That's a, some people think that's a big deal. It isn't per se, but they're being eroded. Small wonder that the specter of privatization is not seen as a solution by many. Canadian governments tax private property. That's one of the reasons I tell you you don't tax private property. And there are no laws limiting such taxation. They can tax whatever they want. There's nothing that says you only have to pay 80% of your life away to the government. It could be 100, and you couldn't say a thing. Canadian governments control property use well beyond the reasonable limits which should exist to protect neighboring properties and people who may be affected by certain actions. 
So instead of fighting with each other, which is the way it seems to sound, especially when you hear in cases you know, like of Caledonia, and trying to negotiate agreements, contracts, and settlements through a very politically unstable and fiscally bankrupt government, all Canadians should be working together to get their governments to entrench and make as their prime function the protection of some kind of property rights, real property rights. No country can claim to be a free nation without having that entrenchment and protection of rights of property as one of its prime functions. No government operating on a socialist principle can possibly carry out this function, since socialism is a redistributive philosophy which specifically requires the violation of property rights. So, many Aboriginal groups have stated that they view themselves as, as caretakers of the land, you've heard that, but rather than as owners. But in a free, non-socialist society, ownership is the very thing that would give them the right to be caretakers of their lands. If you're going to be a caretaker of the land, don't you first have to have a claim to it? Can you come over and caretake my land? Is that how what you think when you're saying caretaker of the land? It can't be that way, and, and, and it doesn't work that way for the Native community either. Governments change with each election. Past agreements can be made null and void with the stroke of a legislative pen. But this is not so in a country with entrenched property rights. Now, I realize I've painted an idealized picture of what I think would be a solution to a very complex situation, but I've done so mainly to establish this principle that will hopefully guide the direction of people on this issue in the future. So, you know, just quickly, if I were to summarize everything I just said, let's avoid all definitions of race, color, and creed in any kind of legislation we make, and you can do that by putting things in property rights. All Canadians, Aboriginals included, should be treated equally before and under the law. And this would in no way exclude their direct participation in the administration of the law. Canadians shouldn't be forced to subsidize racial or ethnic lobby groups. The issue of self-government is, is basically a diversion. Um, never allow any government in Canada to be formed around racial criteria. And any land claim settlements uh, must allow individual Aboriginals the full right to privately own their land. Because that means that they have the right to buy to sell, to rent, or mortgage that land to, from, or with anyone of any racial background. That gives them the power that they need. They can't have that if they're living on a reservation where they don't even own the land they're on. The money given by the government to the reservation doesn't go to them, but to some collective band. That's, that's nonsensical. And we have to be careful to avoid any agreements or settlements that divide people according to their race. Racist policies require some way of determining whether individuals belong to one race or another, which is usually the most repugnant aspect of such policies. We do not need apartheid in Canada. That's part of the big industry going on right, right now in terms of getting claims on the government uh, reserves, just to get people to claim that they're native, even if they've got like one sixteenth blood in their heritage somewhere. So I think Aboriginals deserve better than apartheid. They deserve the full rights, responsibilities, and privileges of all Canadians, you know, as citizens, not by meeting a racial test. So we should be getting up. We should say it's time to draw the line. Let's work together, entrench private property rights in Canada's constitution, and let's form a government that respects, honors, and protects such rights. Then race and heritage just wouldn't matter anymore, and we could all get along together, freely trading, as Chief Alfie said earlier on. That's it for me on this issue, and we'll be going on to the next one after this when we talk about, well, basically taxation and your moral obligation towards it. So here is... Craig Lazon. Okay, okay, I'll be there in a minute, eh? Ever sick? Anyway, it's a big deal for me, you know? Nothing like this ever happened to any of my people before, eh? 
I come from up north, eh? I'm what you call uh, Inuit or uh, Eskimo, I guess you could say. But uh, you're not supposed to say Eskimo no more, eh? Because it means a raw fish eater. And, uh, yeah, well, I don't know why you can't say it no more, but that's why, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew when I was, uh, I knew when I was nine years old that I wanted to leave the North, eh, and become an actor. I was watching my hero, Pat John, on TV. You know Pat John, eh? Yeah, he played uh, Jesse on the Beachcombers. <laughs> it was the episode, N Relic was giving Nick and Jesse a hard time, eh? <laughs> Crazy Relic. Anyway, so... Anyways, Jesse, eh? He goes running to the back of the Persephone and he's all like, Hey! That's our log, eh, Relic? <laughs> and that was it, you know? <laughs> the defining moment for the rest of my life, eh? <laughs> I guess it was the passion in Jesse's voice that did it, you know? <laughs> so, but uh, my brother, my brother, he was pretty pissed off that I left, eh? And I remember this one time, I go back home to visit, eh? Meets me at the door and he's all like, Hey. Pretty boy. Bet you think you're better than the rest of us now, eh? Bet you don't even eat no whale blubber no more. When was the last time you got a moose, eh? Or, or skinned a caribou? I was like, okay, guy, relax, you know? It was true, too. I didn't do it in a long time, eh? See, I never even did it when I was there, right? <laughs> yeah. Our dad owned a gas station, eh? So... <laughs> Loblaws did all our hunting. <laughs> slaves for over 2,000 years, hasn't there always been discontent runaways? Long ago there were rebellions, but they were suppressed. And with each century the slaves acquired more rights under the law. Uh, they received rights to medicine, the right to government payments in their old age, and they slowly learned to be content. Even more fascinating, slavery evolving into an institution with guaranteed medical payments, old age pensions. Quite logical, I'd say, Mr. Spock. Just as it's logical that uh, 20th century Rome would use television to show its gladiator contest, or name a new car the Jupiter 8. Doctor, if I were able to show emotion, your new infatuation with that term would begin to annoy me. What term? Logic. Medical men are trained in logic, Mr. Spock. Really, doctor? I had no idea they were trained. Watching you, I assumed it was trial and error. <laughs> Isn't that just a description of Canada today? Um, slavery as an institution. We talked a lot about taxes. Our tax rates are well over 50%. Really, you gotta, if you really figure it out, I can't believe it's less than 50%. And yet the question comes up, especially since the HST has come in, whether people who, say, get work done by under-the-counter sales to avoid the tax or by shopping in the United States. 
And I've heard two basically re relatively public figures make the argument that you should pay your taxes for altruistic reasons. Never mind your personal circumstances. Never mind you've all, that you're already a slave to taxes. And basically the argument is that if you don't pay your taxes, you're shifting the load to other people. Do you believe that? Because it's not true. I saw this basic stance being taken by uh, London Chamber of Commerce, uh, Jerry McCartney, the, the other week, and supported over at CJBK by Andy Utman, who usually gets uh, into this. And they, they both believe in sharing the pain. Quote, if you don't pay taxes, you're shifting the load to others, argues McCartney, and adds Andy Utman, if I can't afford a job with the taxes, then I won't have it done, end quote. Okay, so you can't afford to have the job done, and so you won't. Now, what's ironic about that argument is that his decision not to have the job done in the circumstances just described would have the same effect on others as cheating on taxes. What's the difference? Namely, it would increase the burden on others. If he was going to have a job done um, and then not have it done, how does that change anything with respect to the other people that he's concerned with? But even worse, there's a second more harmful negative effect. By not having the job done, you're contributing to unemployment. If there's a particular, you know, I'm not saying you want to do it this way because there are reasons to pay. Uh, I, I'm actually a supporter of sales taxes, but no, none other. But even if a particular worker accepts cash under the table for work done in a particular instance, he'll be able to take that cash and spend it on items later on, ser on services that he will be paying taxes on, won't he? Taxes which are now not being paid because of someone's decision not to have some work done because of a sales tax. So it just, you can't get away from it. But the thing is, the real concern behind those who think you should be paying taxes at every opportunity is not really others. It's, it's themselves and the government that they put in between them. You know, because the government's got all these debts. They've got to pay off the debts. Well, not really. While, it's, while it is true that government spending is the ultimate cause of taxation, it is not true that what any particular individual pays in taxes has anything to do with government spending. It's entirely based on that person's income or status, whether you're a property owner, employer, etc. So if you make a choice to be anything, any one of those things rather than another, what, is there some moral obligation that you should have picked the other one that made you more obliging to the rest of society and pay more taxes? Is that the way you're supposed to think? If concern for others, you know, sharing the tax burden is truly one's priority, then imagine the moral status of a person who's unemployed. By not being employed, that individual's forcing a greater tax burden on others, according to this logic. And now imagine the moral status of someone who's not only unemployed, but also collecting unemployment insurance, which they call employment insurance, or some other government assistance. Wouldn't an individual like that, according to this altruistic standard, be, you know, a double burden on the rest of society? You know, once for not paying taxes and once for collecting taxes in the form of a government benefit. So the argument, I think, is rather, it's just self-defeating. It's a silly argument. If you're going to be buying something, your first responsibility is to yourself, to your children, to your family. And everyone else comes second, regardless of how much they all would like to see themselves as come first in your life. It's that old trick, you know, if you're always looking out after the other guy, who's looking out after you? And I think there's a little bit of um, jealousy, envy maybe there, that maybe when someone sees someone else go shopping in the States, they're a little bit angry because they see them getting away with something and not paying the taxes that they're forced to pay. So because they're being punished, they think everyone should be punished, you know. I think that's more of what that attitude is. I saw an interesting letter uh, to the editor of the Free Press last week that referred to an old saying that, um, quote, capitalism is the uneven distribution of wealth. 
while socialism is the uneven distribution of poverty, end quote. And I always smile when I see that. I kind of can agree with the tone of it. But hidden in that bromide is a, is a real misunderstanding about economics that's so critical and fundamental that to fail to understand it is to fail to understand the working of economics altogether. Capitalism does not, quote, distribute wealth. It's the system that allows people to create wealth. Right in the midst of poverty, which is our natural state in nature, just sit around in a field someday, do nothing for the rest of your life, you'll find yourself in something called poverty. But not if everybody else around you does the same thing. It's only if the two or three people in your group decide to work and create wealth and become rich, then you are in poverty. But if you all just sat there and did nothing, then you'd all be sharing the same fate, and no one would be in poverty. And so, and socialism does not distribute poverty. It creates it where it did not exist before, and that's namely in the middle class. And I think you're all getting a very good dose of socialism these days with all our taxes going up, with power being provided by the government, health care provided by the government, education provided by the government. Is there anything that they haven't got their hands into yet that isn't going to cost you something dear at some point in your life before it's over? Well, that's the whole picture, and you can see the whole issue, whether it faces the aboriginals, we as taxes, we're all dealing with the welfare state and politicians who are out of control. So the only thing we can do is keep telling it like it is, and that's what we're going to keep doing on this show. And we hope that next week you will return to join us once again when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. So it's good to be back in Winnipeg, which is home and native land, as we all know. And, uh, you know, Winnipeg is, of course, on Indian land. And I just want to say on behalf of all of us, we love what you've done with the place. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, guys, you've been great. I'd love to stick around and talk some more, but I got to get going. After all, land don't claim itself. Thank you very much, folks. Thank you.